You're listening to a podcast from the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. I hope that you were able to get some, uh, some sustenance. Um, we have explored now in some depth the, uh, the parlous state of Iraq today, um, and we have looked at what the war has cost the American taxpayer and the American economy and how that relates to the fiscal problems that we are facing today. And we turn now uh, to the geopolitical lessons of this conflict, uh, I think the heart of this, um, of this discussion. One of the great strengths of this nation, indeed I would say one of our defining characteristics, uh, is the American willingness, inclination, capacity always to look to the future. Uh, to embrace it. Um, that ability has driven our growth for several centuries and certainly accounts for some of our greatest achievements. But it has a heavy cost. Uh, and that cost is that we are far too quick to turn the page and to leave our past behind uh, relatively unexamined. Um, it was Edmund Burke, not George Sandiana, but 250 plus years ago, who warned that those who don't know history are condemned to repeat it. And it, I must say, I was thinking about that this week when I read in the most recent Pew poll that 45% of Americans believe that the U.S. achieved its purposes in Iraq. And I, I had to wonder what those numbers can possibly mean. Uh, our purpose on this panel is not to examine the factual record, uh, but to try to get behind the facts and to ask what we've learned positively and, and negatively from this expensive, literally and metaphorically, war. <coughs> Excuse me. I think if you scoured the country, you wouldn't find uh, two people better suited to this task than those seated next to me. Spigniew Brzezinski is, of course, well-known to everyone as the National Security Advisor to President Jimmy Carter. But more important for this purpose, I think, is that he is among a handful, maybe half a dozen, um, of the <coughs> great strategic thinkers in the United States over the past century. Um, there is no clearer, sharper thinker about national security active today. He's been a, a professor at Harvard, at Columbia, <coughs> and at Johns Hopkins. Um, his dozen books, which span more than half a century, have examined two sets <coughs> of topics. Uh, one has been uh, the nature of communism, totalitarianism, and of um, international security relations during the Cold War. Um, and the other... Uh, increasingly uh, over the past um, half dozen years or more, has been about America's role in the world uh, in a rapidly changing uh, strategic environment uh, and about America's interests looking forward. Um, and finally, I would add as a qualification for today's discussion, um, unlike most former holders of high office in Washington, he has been willing over and over again to step outside the conventional wisdom when the issue warranted it, um, taking some risks with his own reputation. General McMaster is one of a very, uh, one of the most prominent 
of a very small, very elite, very important class of individuals um, who've earned the title uh, warrior soldiers. Um, he too has been willing to critically examine the past and has done so with such power that rather than end his military career, the work has ultimately advanced it. His PhD thesis became the widely influential book, Dereliction of Duty, Lyndon Johnson, Robert McNamara, the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and the Lies that Led to Vietnam. I think the title gives you some idea of his appetite for straight talk. Uh, he is equally known for brilliance as a combat commander, uh, earning a silver star for leadership in the 1991 Gulf War, and even wider recognition for his enormously influential success in the Battle of Talafar in the Iraq War. Um, in the rest of that war, he went back and forth between field command and increasingly important staff positions, culminating in his role as a leader of uh, General Petraeus's brain trust in developing and applying uh, new doctrine on counterinsurgency operations. So we have, um, I think, two people um, who can really help us examine, uh, help us not turn the page uh, too soon. And let me start, uh, invite General uh, McMaster to share his thoughts on the critical uh, lessons as he sees them. Well, well, thank you so much. Of course, there's so many lessons in our, you know, our military is obviously over the past 12 years of the wars in both Afghanistan and in Iraq, adapted to what initially were really unforeseen circumstances and difficulties associated with both wars. And I think the first lesson is that we have to make sure that we understand the continuities in war and warfare. And this cuts against a certain degree what you see as the emerging conventional wisdom about both Afghanistan and in Iraq, that somehow these wars were aberrations because of their complexity. And they were aberrations because of the, the type of sustained commitment we needed to attempt to forge a sustainable political outcome consistent with our vital interests. And this is because in the years prior to the war, there was a great deal of momentum that built up behind what I would call a fantastical theory uh, about, about the nature of future armed conflict. And this was based primarily in the belief that advances in communications technologies, information technologies, computing power, and precision munitions had completely revolutionized war and warfare. And therefore, wars could be waged in the future in a way that would be very fast, cheap, efficient, and low cost, mainly by the projection of firepower onto land from the maritime and aerospace domains, but also employing small numbers of elite special forces, and that would provide the answer to the problem of future armed conflict. And it was an appealing argument, because we would all like war, obviously, to be fast, cheap, efficient, and, and low cost. But of course, as it turns out, uh, in both Afghanistan and, and in Iraq, we were confronted with realities that really demonstrated that this argument in, in the 1990s associated with what was called at the time the revolution in military affairs you know, was mainly a faith-based argument. And then once we confronted reality, you know, we really had to adapt quickly to, I think, what are four main continuities in war and warfare that were certainly evident uh, in Iraq. 
And the first is that war is an extension of politics. Of course, this is nothing new and quite consistent with, uh, with the writings of the 19th, Prussian, uh, 19th century Prussian philosopher of war, Karl von Clausewitz. What this means is you wage war to achieve political outcomes that address the cause of the war and get you to, again, this sustainable political outcome consistent with our vital interests. We perhaps did not do as good of a job of defining that end state as we should have in context of, of the political, social, tribal, religious dynamics inside of Iraq and then how that fit in to the broader geopolitical landscape within, within the region. And so we were at a disadvantage in not really having that clearly defined political objective. And when you look back at war planning for, for in both Afghanistan and Iraq, you see it dominated mainly by how we are going to apply military force. What are the numbers of troops? How are those troops and, and those capabilities going to be applied on the physical battleground? But of course, that should all conform to a political strategy that lay, lays a foundation for all military operations, activities, initiatives, and, and so forth. So the first continuity that we relearned, I would say, is that war uh, is an extension of, of politics. The second, the second key continuity is that war is a profoundly human endeavor. And, and of course, we talked this morning really about understanding the history. In fact, Ambassador Crocker said history, history, history. And, and of, of course, what is most important in, in understanding what is going to, to be the nature of a particular conflict or the character of a conflict is that most recent history. And so in Iraq, the, the factors that, that were most important were the fact that, that uh, Iraqis had been living under a brutal, murderous regime uh, for over three decades, a regime that had engaged in a, in a destructive and extremely costly war between 1980 and 1988 uh, with the, the Iranians, a regime that had invaded Kuwait, after which UN sanctions uh, really put an additional strain on Iraqi society, while at the same time strengthening the criminalized patronage networks associated with Saddam that, that really controlled the country and the, and the police state there. The associated polarizing effect on, on Iraq's uh, communities, how they had become pitted against each other, how the regime had used weapons of mass destruction on his own people, the Kurds in, in, in the north, and, and how he had persecuted the majority of the, of the population, the Shia population, in the wake of the 1991-92 the uh, uh, Gulf War. And so, and, and also other factors associated with his return to the faith initiatives and the use of, of really a, a Salafi jihadist ideology to really turn people's frustrations away from the regime and toward the West and, and Israel and so forth in the context of the Zionist crusader conspiracy and the effect that had on, on Iraqi society. So understanding that human dimension of conflict and in particular understanding local conflicts that could occur how these tribal, ethnic, sectarian competitions for power and resources would play out, and then how they would be connected not just to national politics, but also to the, uh, to the agendas of other uh, countries and, and organizations. And I think of particular relevance uh, in this case would be, uh, would be Syria, uh, Iran, and, and transnational terrorist organizations associated with al-Qaeda. So the political and, and human dimensions of war I think are obviously extremely important for us to remember and an important lesson uh, for us to, to carry forward. The other, the other key aspect, I think, is that war is uncertain. And we heard a lot about today failures to predict uh, the cost of the war, for example. 
And that, that's not, that, that really is, is not unusual, obviously, for us not to be able to predict the future of the course of events in war, although we continue to try to do it. And in fact, I think you could, you know, you could define uh, American war planning oftentimes as, as a bit narcissistic in terms of defining the problem and, the, and what we what would like to tend to do only in relation to us, really. And then to assume what we would like to do is not only going to be relevant, but decisive to the, to the outcome of the war. And so it's for this reason, when you go to war, uh, it's, it's very important to be able to take actions to, to adapt continuously. It's for this reason why oftentimes if you try to be efficient in war by limiting numbers of troops, for example, in, in effect you can seize the initiative to enemies in Iraq, for example, as in what was initially a decentralized, hybrid, localized insurgency coalesced, we did not have sufficient forces, and forces, frankly, were not well prepared for, for a counterinsurgency or, or security mission to establish security conditions and to address the vacuum of power and rule of law that was left uh, after, the, after the unseating of the, of the, the, uh, of the Hussein regime. And then, and then I think the final uh, of these four main continuities in, in the nature of war is that war is a contest of, of wills and that we have to communicate our determination to see the effort through toward that sustainable outcome consistent with, with our interests and worthy of the sacrifices and investments we've made uh, in, the, in the outcome of that war. And so overall, I think it would be fair to say that we – we are oftentimes fixated when looking back on a conflict on how we did on the physical battleground, how we really operated against the fielded forces uh, of enemy organizations, when in fact what we have to do is, is think about how we operate and how we plan uh, to achieve a sustainable political outcome consistent with our interests. And so I, I think this is a particularly important lesson now because as we look at, at, the, at the war in Iraq, the ongoing war in Afghanistan, where we still have 66,000 troops engaged uh, every, every day, there will be a tendency to, again, define the problem of future war in a way that, that, that we think we can solve that problem in a way that's fast, cheap, and efficient and, and, and relies mainly on, on, uh, on technological prowess. Uh, and I think that the wars in, in Iraq and Afghanistan are both instructive uh, in terms of their, their way that they have highlighted important continuities in war and warfare that have to be taken into consideration from the outset. Thank you. And I, um, and I mean this with respect. Will we ever learn that lesson? Uh, well, I mean, you know, well, certainly in the thinking about Iran, Less so, I think, with respect to Syria. As I listened to you, I thought um, we we might well have learned a lot of those lessons in <coughs> Vietnam, the conflict you studied so deeply. It's not so obvious that we've learned that much has changed in terms of the learning, uh, has it? Well, I mean, that's yet to be seen, and I think ultimately you could you could make the argument that the that what we learned from the wars in both Iraq and and, uh, and Afghanistan will be as important as, as the outcome, could be as important as, as the outcome of those wars. Uh, to answer your question, we do relearn these lessons every time we go to war. The question is, will we be able to understand these lessons and apply them to, to really how we, uh, how we structure um, our national defense um, 
for national defense and, and how we prepare you know, our leaders, civilian and military leaders, to deal with future threats to, to national and international security. So I, I think that's, that remains to be, to be seen. But I, I think what, is one of, what may be, there, there are some major impediments to us learning these lessons. One of those impediments is the tendency in the conventional wisdom to, to view these wars dismissively as, you know, wars of choice or aberrations. Unless you're going to say that future policymakers will make perfect decisions in the future based on, on, on near-perfect foresight or understanding of, of the situation at the outset, then we obviously have to be prepared for the complex interaction that we, that we found in both Iraq and Afghanistan against determined enemies and in very complicated environments. The other impediment to learning is just really defining war as fast, cheap, e and easy is, is appealing. And one of, those, you know, one of those, uh, the, the, those manifestations of this appeal is this sort of uh, what I would call a rating mentality that has emerged uh, from a, a misunderstanding of what led to really a success in Iraq uh, during the period, uh, during the period 2007 to 2009, <coughs> uh, during which I think we had a very good shot at, at consolidating gains after that, that period of time and getting to a sustainable political outcome that was consistent with our interests and I, and I believe in, with the interests of the Iraqi people. That is, this is the idea that really future war mainly is, is about identifying sort of no, no, nodes in an enemy's organization and then conducting raids against that organization, an attrition or a targeting approach to war. Those raids being conducted either by precision-guided munitions or by highly specialized uh, special forces. When, when in fact, that, that sort of approach confuses military activity with progress, again, toward trying to achieve sustainable objectives. And so it's, it's appealing, it sounds great, but when you consider the four continuities of war, war's political dimension, human dimension, the uncertainty, of war and war as a contest of wills, you, then you recognize the, you know, the inadequacy and actually the danger associated with that kind of approach to future war. It is, in many ways, strategic bombing theory from the 1920s <coughs> in, 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 a new, in a new guise. Spig, I spent um, all of 2002, uh, and with many of my colleagues here at Carnegie, um, arguing passionately that um, uh, every bit of at least of declassified uh, information available suggested that there was nothing other than some very old chemical weapons shells um, in Iraq, uh, many of which had been shown to be uh, um, inactive by that time uh, several years before, um, that the record from past U.S. interventions to armed military interventions to change uh, uh, the nature of governments in countries had a very, very, very slender uh, record of success and that Iraq had none of the characteristics uh, that would lead to success of such a venture. And third, that the argument that was being made that such an invasion would trigger a tsunami of democratic transformations across the region um, uh, was uh, uh, at best, uh, in General Master's phrase, a, a faith-based argument. Um, you were not there in 2002, um, and, uh, but later you became a, a, a very uh, strong uh, critic of this effort. Um, what was it that, that changed your mind, 
um, uh, that that led you to make the arguments you did in, in the mid-2000s? I remember vividly uh, the night uh, when the war commenced. Uh, I was asked by the News Hour, PBS, uh, to be there. The expectation was the war was imminent, and Walter Russell Mead and I were asked to comment on it. And I remember vividly the moment when all of a sudden the news came that major explosions are taking place in Baghdad, that Baghdad is under air assault, and that the war begun. And I had such a sick feeling in my stomach. I said to myself, I just hope to God that we now find those weapons of mass destruction, because that was the reason why the war was started. And I was already by then conscious of the fact that there was a deliberate confusion in terminology used by the administration to justify the initiation of hostilities. For the weapons of mass destruction were alleged to include atomic weapons, long-range capability to deliver them, and chemical weapons as well as bacteriological ones. And, of course, anyone knows that chemical weapons were invented back in 1916 and used in World War I and were generally not liked very much by the military as actual tools of war, although they were employed by the Iraqis against the Iranians in the 1980s. And there is now increasing evidence that they used them in connivance with us. A book has just come out based on documentary evidence entitled uh, The Making of Enemies Pertaining to Iran and the United States, which provides some evidence for the proposition that the targeting by the Iraqis of the Iranian objects and particularly population centers was known to us, and we are providing them precise information where to strike, knowing that the effect would be massive casualties. Um, I remember that evening well because by then I began to worry that perhaps what was being publicly asserted was not true. But I wasn't convinced of it. I was uncertain. I was a skeptic. And a few days before the initiation of the conflict, several former officials, for example, Henry Kissinger and myself, I don't remember exactly who else, but we were several there, were invited to a meeting with Rumsfeld, Powell, and Rice. And I remember asking them, and I was conscious of that that evening when I saw the beginning of the war. I asked them, how certain are you that the Iraqis have these weapons of mass destruction? And the answer from all three of them was, it's not a question of how certain we are. We know they have them. That impressed me because... These are people whom I have known for a long time. And when you say you know that someone has something, it means to me you know. It's not a question of probability. It's a statement of certitude. Nonetheless, a few minutes later, it still occurred to me to pursue the subject, so I asked them one more question. If you know that they have weapons of mass destruction, what is the order of battle for their use? and particularly for nuclear weapons. 
Because obviously, if they have them and they're ready to use them, there has to be an order of battle authorizing either divisional commanders or brigade commanders or whoever else has the possibility to actually execute the initiation of their use. And here the answer was perplexing. They said, we don't know. I found that surprising because it seemed to me that if they have certitude over the fact that they have them, presumably that certitude would extend to some sources of information that would give us an insight into how these weapons would be used in combat. What would be the process of initiation of their use? So that evening I was profoundly troubled and I wrote an article basically arguing that we should defer the attack until Bleeks of Sweden has had time to conclude his research, his search within Iraq for such weapons of mass destruction. And he was being increasingly provided with targets to inspect from the CIA. And thus, one could assume that the knowledge we have was being put at his disposal and he was pleading for that time so that he could complete his reports to the UN, but in effect to the United States, and indirectly to the two countries that were egging us on, Prime Minister Blair of Great Britain particularly, and also the Israelis. Well, we know what happened subsequently. The weapons were never found, and the war was therefore initiated on the basis of assertions which were most charitably described as inaccurate and probably simply as fraudulent. And that concerned me enormously because I said that I felt that at stake was American credibility worldwide, that this had really significant implications for the position of the United States in the world. And I'm afraid that this has unfortunately come to pass. The standing that the United States enjoyed at the end of the Cold War and which lasted into the beginnings of the 21st century has been very badly dissipated. And that affects us adversely around the world and has serious implications for future decisions that involve war and peace. On the basis of what has happened, what level of confidence are we as citizens? Is America as a country entitled to have, for example, before initiating a war against Iran? We do have some parties who tell us that there are red lines that should be drawn immediately. Some of these red lines that were recently drawn have been in fact crossed. Now they're being extended by one year. But then what happens after that one year from now? And whom are we to trust? On what basis are these assertions being made? How reliable are they? And are there alternatives to war that could be feasible? I cannot ignore the fact, having been deeply involved in the Cold War, that we managed to deter the Soviet Union, not only from an attack on the United States, but we managed to deter the Soviet Union from the use of force regarding Europe, our friends and our allies, because we protected them credibly. That is to say, we made it very clear in advance that we identified our security with the security of Europe. 
and that any action against Europe would be tantamount to action against the United States. And we knew very well, giving these assurances, that we were directly vulnerable because of them. Vulnerable in a huge scale. We once had a false alarm, and if that alarm had not been false, within roughly eight hours, about 85 million Americans and Soviets would have been dead. I was then national security advisor, so I was involved in that. So we had this consciousness of serious responsibility and also credible obligation. And we prevailed. The Soviet Union never did it. And we never did it either. And we're doing the same for the Japanese and the South Koreans. Vis-a-vis a country that is acting openly in a somewhat seemingly irrational fashion, maybe it's calculated by them, but the impact is disturbing in terms of its questionable rationality. And it's a country which already has eight bombs. And it has delivery systems that cover all of South Korea and Japan. And potentially for the first time, though not, I believe, yet, in fact, the northwestern parts of the United States. And yet we find that sufficient to protect South Korea and Japan. Why is it we can't do that for Israel? Why does the president have to use vague language about all options are on the table, which is a threat of use of force? And why does he have to make categorical verbal guarantees which commit him to the use of that force and create a presumption that he will? Has the country as a whole been consulted? I dare say that in the present atmosphere, much of Congress probably would support it for reasons more connected with our domestic politics than with foreign policy, but would probably lean that way also on the assumption that it will never happen, but it could happen. But we are certainly able, if we wish, to protect Israel in a credible fashion by guarantees which are as binding or even more binding than those that we gave to the Europeans and are giving to the Japanese and to the South Koreans, and especially so vis-a-vis a country which doesn't have the opportunity to threaten us directly, because there's no way the Iranians can reach us. And at the same time, we should not lose sight of the fact that if we do repeat vis-a-vis Iran, what we did vis-a-vis Iraq will probably be engaged in a conflict that's more protracted and more regionally widespread than was the case with Iraq a decade ago. So these are some of the concerns that are rooted in history. Beyond that, make, let me make one more observation about the nature of war. Democracies are very able to, wear total, to wage total war if they're attacked. They're not so good. They're not predisposed. I think they're mentally not prepared to wage total war if they have themselves started the war, but were not attacked. It's an important psychological as well as historical difference. We were able to break the will of the Germans in large measure by massive air assaults on their civilian population. Yes, of course, it was justified by the need to disrupt transportation, undermine industry, but a great part of the motive was also, let's break their will by destroying and burning their cities, and in the course of destroying and burning their cities, killing as many civilians as possible. 
The most classical example of that was provided by two single strikes, each of very short duration and of absolutely calamitous human casualties, Hiroshima and Nagasaki, where in the course of minutes we incinerated, literally incinerated, several hundred thousand people. We were able to do it because we were the victims of an attack. We were defending ourselves. We didn't want to assume the burden of major casualties for our military, which an invasion of Japan would have necessitated. We broke their will, and we won the war. But look at the last several wars we have waged, where we were not, in a sense, the objects of a threat from an enemy that would devastate us. We settled for compromise in Korea after several years of bitter war. We withdrew from Vietnam, and we did not prevail fully, judging from circumstances now occurring every day in Iraq or in Afghanistan, in the conflicts in Iraq and Afghanistan. If we wished to do so, we could have incinerated their populations. We could destroy them. But that is something, thank God, that democracies do not do lightly unless they feel themselves totally threatened. And I think that's an important consideration to bear in mind because we are today facing the prospect of regional wars in which we'll be fighting aroused populations and not formal states capable of threatening us. What goes on in Iraq today poses no military threat to the United States, but it is a geopolitical consequence of some cost to us. The same is true of Afghanistan. And God knows what will happen after we're out of Afghanistan in the region as a whole. A war with Iran would certainly spread to Iraq, and through Iraq, to Syria, to Lebanon, and Jordan. It would engulf western Afghanistan as well, which is relatively peaceful, and where Shiites live, and Iran would be able to extend the conflict of war to there as well. The consequences would be massive. Because we are now facing the possibility of confronting populations that are politically aroused and who, for a variety of ethnic, religious, nationalistic reasons, choose to fight. And that is a new reality, which for the United States, if we become more and more embroiled in this kind of conflict, will absorb us, tie us down, and repeat on a massively larger scale the bitter costs of the engagement that we have had to undertake in Afghanistan and of the one that we did not have to undertake in Iraq 10 years ago. Do you see, in general, big distinction between wars uh, undertaken following an attack versus ones um, uh, that we choose to launch as being equivalent to your distinction between a war of choice uh, you didn't say, use the word, but a war of necessity. Is that the, is that the same dividing line you see? Well, I, th I think that, that really uh, we could debate for quite a long time about the decisions to go to war. But I think what is important from a military perspective is to understand really what happens what that, when that decision is made and how the military can contribute again to achieving an outcome consistent with our vital interests and worthy of those sacrifices. 
So I think the, the answer to your question more directly is that we have to understand the character of particular conflicts on their own terms to try to seek some kind of equivalency between you know, World War II and the dropping of atomic bombs and what our response was to the murder of, of over 3,000 Americans on September 11, 2001, I think you can only get limited utility out of that. Talking about Iraq, I think we also have to understand that those conflicts evolve over time. Again, wars inherent uncertainty and nonlinearity. And it seems that in retrospect, as we look at the war in Iraq, we don't ascribe any agency at all to our enemies. And again, this is another sort of aspect of the narcissistic approach we take to understanding war and warfare. It is as if only our decisions affect the circumstances and the outcomes. And what the truth is, really, in Iraq, is that we faced very brutal, determined, murderous enemies. Uh, and, and, uh, and, and, what you, the, and the conflict evolved over time. After, after really unseating of the, of the Saddam regime, there was a period of time during which a decentralized hybrid local insurgency coalesced. They pursued a strategy initially, just kill some Americans and they'll leave. The sort of Black Hawk Down uh, approach. Uh, and Saddam had distributed that movie uh, to his people. And, and, and they thought if they inflicted some casualties on us, we, we would leave. That didn't work. Then what they began to do is to attack infrastructure, power lines, water pipes. This is, this is Lenin's you know, sort of theory of the worse the better. Grow pools of popular discontent from which the enemy can, the, the insurgency uh, can draw strength. But then in December of 2003, very early in the war, Sir Cowie wrote a letter and he said, we are losing because Americans, they're here, they're kind of disoriented, they don't speak the language, they won't be able to really identify us, but increasingly, larger numbers of Iraqi forces are becoming more capable. And this was in particular the Iraqi Civil Defense Corps. The strategy around that time had shifted to attacking, usually with mass murder attacks at recruiting depots and so forth, these nascent security forces before they developed the resiliency to stand on their own. But in December, what Zarqawi said is, what we have to do is start a civil war. And then once we start a civil war by pitting Iraq's communities against each other, we can gain sponsorship within the Sunni Arab and Turkmen communities and then use that sponsorship to gain control of territory and resources and perpetuate a sectarian civil war and pursue our objective of establishing the Islamic State of Iraq. That's when you have, in March of 2004, Fallujah 1, concurrent with some uh, Shia uh, militia uprisings uh, in, in Karbala and, and Najaf. And from that period of time on, there was a slowly evolving sectarian conflict. So you had a problem of insurgency, and, and, and ter transnational terrorist organizations grafted onto that insurgency. And then the character of the conflict at that time began to evolve into a, a sectarian uh, civil war that really was in, in, in full blast after the Samara bombings, but, but pre-existed the Samara bombings in February of, of 2006. Now, the other parties to this conflict were not just, you know, not, not just um, you know, you know, insurgencies, insurgent and terrorist organizations that were committing mass murder attacks and trying to keep a cycle of sectarian violence going. Increasingly, these were Shia Islamist militias 
associated with the Islamic Revolutionary Guards Corps of Iran, increasingly so beyond 2003. After the Sutterist uprising in, in the early 2004 and the destruction of large numbers of that Sutterist militia, they took a different approach, began to get more training in Iran, get more training on how to conduct assassinations, how to conduct a subversive campaign, how to operate in smaller groups, how to emphasize uh, sniper attacks, small direct action attacks, and especially employ IEDs and roadside bombs, and the most destructive ones being EFPs. So by the time of, by 2006, the dominant feature of the war had become a sectarian civil war. Our strategy had not kept up with that. Once we caught up with the, an understanding of the character of the conflict, we were able to develop a political strategy to, that aimed at bringing Iraq's internal communities toward a sustainable political accommodation that would remove support for either Shia Islamist militias or for al-Qaeda in Iraq. The military strategy aimed at breaking the cycle of sectarian violence through more effective uh, security of the population and by targeting those who were irreconcilable in, in, in among both parties to, to, that, to that civil war. I mean, these, the, the extremist murderous groups that were perpetuating that cycle of sectarian violence with the idea being that as we destroyed elements of those organizations, others would learn vicariously and say, my best alternative to a negotiated agreement here is looking pretty bad. And so what, what we are willing to do now is to advance our interests through politics rather than through violence. And, and this is when we had a much more you know, successful election, the parliamentary election, and so, and so forth. There was an opportunity, I believe, at that stage to consolidate uh, some gains and to move toward a sustainable political outcome. Uh, and, and we know that, that some of those efforts uh, failed uh, or weren't sufficient to consolidate those gains. Uh, and, and so the future of Iraq is obviously very much in question uh, beyond this point. But, I, it, but I, I think it's very important to understand that these conflicts evolve over time and we're fighting enemies there who have a say in the future course of events. And we need to talk more about those enemies. What are they trying to achieve? What are their goals? What are their strategies? Because then we could inform the public about what the stakes are. But instead, we talk about only us. And we talk about only our number of troops and what we did. And as if everything that we did had led to the outcome without any interaction with those who, against whom we're fighting. Let's open the conversation now, and um, <laughs> I, think, I think what we'll do, given the number of hands I see, is we'll take two or three questions at once, if, if, uh, if my speakers will allow. Let's start right there. Please do wait for the mic. Thank you so much, and a great conference. Uh, General McMaster, um, uh, you uh, alluded to uh, two very important uh, uh, concepts, uh, propounded by 19th century uh, Germans, von Clausewitz, and of course Bismarck's uh, Iron Dice. Uh, so my question is, uh, given the fact that the last election was, relatively speaking, fairly close, and that one of the two candidates uh, was advised by a number of neoconservative theoreticians, uh, how do you expect, and given the, 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 uh, the, the three previous sessions uh, focus on the economic losses, the opportunity costs in Afghanistan, the reputational losses that the nation has taken. 
How do you explain the continued prevalence of this philosophy in the American political discussion? Thank you. Which, which philosophy are you talking about? conservative. All right, we'll take two right there on the aisle. Define that in three sentences, please. Okay, no, sorry. Right. Yes, uh, thank you. My name is Saeed Erekat, and uh, I'm a journalist in town. But having uh, spent five years in Iraq, where I had the pleasure of meeting General McMaster in Baghdad, actually, I can tell you that Iraq is destroyed beyond redemption. Uh, almost a million Iraqis have died. Infrastructure is completely destroyed. Yet Iraq, as Iraq, does not figure on the ongoing debate. So I want to ask... Dr. Brzezinski and General McMaster, who should bear the moral responsibility for what has happened in Iraq? Thank you. Okay, right there. Thank you. Mark Katz from George Mason University. Thank you for both presentations. Uh, with regard to Dr. Brzezinski's uh, comments about uh, Iran and, uh, and the President's statements in, in Israel, I have to admit I'm very confused by what he means by um, you know, all means necessary. Uh, I, I don't think that um, the Israeli government is interested in occupying Iran, and I don't think the Obama administration wants to do so. But it seems that the strategy, if there is one, is to make some kind of surgical strike to knock out the Iranian nuclear capacity. And I'm just curious, is that possible? Or is that another example of faith-based uh, strategy? And, and, and for the general in particular, in that you have raised the importance of understanding how the opponent is going to respond, how, how, what is the likely response of the Iranians to what, what, is what we hope to be a surgical strike, such as the uh, Israelis delivered on Iraq in 81 okay. or Syria? Thank you. I think we've got Why don't I deal with, with Iraq and Iran? Then, then there's a, another issue which I want to address. On Iraq, the question is very simple. Who bears responsibility? Well, I think the answer is very obvious. We do. We started the war. The Iraqis didn't attack us. We went in. Some may feel for legitimate reasons. Others may feel for dubious reasons. Some, like myself, feel for fraudulent reasons. But in any case, the fact is, we started it. So we're responsible for what happened. I wish we had done better. Even though I am critical of the war, I wish we had been more successful, less brutal. The general referred several times to the murderous character of those whom he fought. He's doubtless right. But I wonder how they look at us in that connection. Every war is murderous. And therefore, it depends a little bit also on what its historical antecedents are and what its geopolitical and moral consequences are. On Iran, well, I don't know what a surgical strike means. Um, because we haven't tried one in that set of circumstances, we will be attacking nuclear facilities. Some of them are located close to urban centers, one particularly. Uh, what about the fallout? What about radiation? How surgical can an, an attack on nuclear facility be? What about even without radiation? Simply the casualties from the explosives used. Casualties, first of all, of the scientific staff that's working in there, and then of people in adjoining areas. How surgical will that be? Then beyond that, how decisively effective will that strike be? Well, of course, it depends on its scale. And if it depends on its scale, 
then the consequences of the earlier question, how costly it will be, depend a little bit on that scale. So it may be surgical, but it may be lethal on a massive scale at the same time. And then suppose it has to be repeated in a year or two from now. What happens in Iran itself? Will the Iranian people joining us in justified outrage at the mullahs rise in righteous indignation, overthrow the regime, and apologize to us for having provoked us into attacking them? (laughs) I think the probability of that is not very high. Um, I think a more likely probability is that they'll join the regime in a fierce, frustrated, protracted anger at us, which, depending on the scale of the casualties and damage wrought, may last for decades. But without even waiting for decades, they certainly can do some things around Iran immediately. Impede the access of the world to energy by causing incidents in the Gulf, which our Navy can overcome. But our Navy cannot prevent insurance companies for tripling, quadrupling the cost of acquiring energy. So there's an enormously negative impact on global economy immediately, particularly in Asia, for which neither the Japanese nor the Chinese will be particularly grateful to us. But it also pushes the Europeans much more in the hands of the Russians. And then every adjoining area next to Iran is susceptible to local war, which used to be called in the communist lexicon, people's war. I once had a meeting with Deng Xiaoping in which he informed us that he is going to invade Vietnam. And he wanted us to be sort of passively friendly, expecting Soviet reactions. And he was asked, what is the likely Soviet reaction by the President of the United States? And he sort of breezily said, well, you know, they may do this, they may do that, they may send arms, that will take a long time because we're not going to be doing it for a long time. And they may stage border incidents, we have had lots of them, so we can have a few more, so what? And then he says, they may invade us from Mongolia, where they have 22 armored divisions, and strike southward towards Beijing directly. And he says, we will use people's war on them. And I know what he meant. It meant the kind of thing that we have experienced also. And people's wars don't end that quickly. And at the same time, the aggressor is less inclined to go all out for total war because the aggressor wasn't threatened. So there are self-inhibitions at work here. And particularly so in a case like us, a democracy. We're not going to go and kill all Iranians even if they do these things in the region. So we're going to be faced with a protracted conflict which will make this experience of the decade ago really seem like a trifle. And therefore, I am worried as to why we're trying to buy off this pressure that the president is feeling for commitments to military action against Iran without fully contemplating the large-scale geopolitical consequences The effect that will be alone in this adventure have no illusions. Even those who are kind of semi-egging us on, as was the case with Sarkozy, less now with Hollande, as is the case with the British somewhat, they're not going to be in there with us. 
and there will be a lot of countries that will indirectly suffer, that will resent it bitterly. So it's a bad choice. I don't think the president wants to do it. I, I think the president wants to avoid it. And I am sympathetic to his position. But I just wish that some of our rhetoric was more careful because that rhetoric could then be, so to speak, applicable and used by those who favor a war as, in fact, already legitimating such a decision. And we saw that, I think, in 2002. Let me turn back to you. Well, I think just to I'll just address one of the questions, which is about, about moral responsibility, and just to tie into to, uh, what Dr. Brzezinski said, I think it does have a lot to do with historical antecedents and what evolved inside of, of Iraqi society uh, really from the 1970s onward, especially against the destructive war with the Iranians from 80, uh, to 19, 1980 to 1988, uh, the, uh, the, the decision to invade uh, Kuwait, and then, and then the U.N. sanctions that followed that and the effect that that had uh, on Iraqi society, which made it all the more difficult for that society and that polity to move towards stability in, in, in the wake of, of uh, unseating of, of, the, of, the, of the Hussein regime in, in 2003. And then, you know, from my perspective, I would blame al-Qaeda in Iraq and the murderous bastards, frankly, uh, who use mass murder as their principal tactic in the war. And this is where I think you have to pay attention to local realities. And I, I would ask Dr. Brzezinski to, you know, to go visit the cities uh, in Iraq that were racked uh, by, by, these, uh, by these murderous attacks and ask them who they blame. And, uh, and what, they, what they will tell you is they blame the people who committed those murders, and that's who they should blame, I think. In, two, in 2005, uh, when we went into Talafra, it was a city that life had been choked out of it, uh, because of a really systematic attack, a very sophisticated attack by al-Qaeda in Iraq and their associated groups. They turned that city into their training base. I command Fort Benning, Georgia now, which is our maneuver center. This was the Fort Benning, Georgia uh, of the insurgency. It's where they conducted sniper training, mortar training, medical training. These aren't just insurgencies that kind of happen because people don't like America. These are organizations that mobilize resources and people. This is an enemy organization. Courses offered there in Talafer included kidnapping and murder. Uh, obviously, in the, in the courses you would imagine in terms of uh, IED courses and, and so forth. And they, they literally choked the life out of the city. Uh, schools have been closed for over a year. Marketplaces have been closed. Communities had fallen in on themselves because they had succeeded in pitting the Sunni and the Shia communities against each other. And I think that this is the tactic that gives, I think, us a, a, a window to understanding other conflicts in the, you know, really across multiple regions. The first lesson, I think, is understand every local contact con, um, conflict on its own terms, understand its connection to larger political struggles and conflicts at the national level and regional level. But one general, general observation you can make, whether it's in Mali or whether it's in northern Nigeria, or whether it's in Syria, uh, or I think in Lebanon, or northern Yemen, or southern Thailand, or you know, pick a, uh, or Pakistan uh, in the Fatah uh, and so forth, is that these groups who are pursuing political agendas by the use of terrorist tactics, and those tactics involve trying to gain sponsorship among certain aggrieved portions of the population and to use that, that sponsorship to gain a foothold, and then to, to use that foothold to per perpetuate violence between groups, pitting groups against each other. 
So what was necessary in Talafer was to set the security conditions to bring people back together, to forge an accommodation between parties who had been fighting against each other, and to and to for the for the good people who had to develop a common vision for the future in which they could believe their interests would be advanced and protected, and then to remove sponsorship for these murders uh, who were inflicting so much pain and suffering on that on those communities, and so my experience has been uh, in both Iraq and in Afghanistan that American soldiers, Marines, uh, airmen, sailors took great risks and made tremendous sacrifices to break the cycle of these cycles of violence and provide security so that those, those accommodations could, can be made. I think it is analogous to what's happening in Afghanistan, where you essentially have an intra-Pushtun civil war going on, a civil war that was perpetuated in part by a perception that there, there had been the establishment of exclusionary political economies that left key elements of the population outside the tent. Those became recruiting grounds. Uh, for, the, for the Taliban groups, various Taliban groups, Haqqani Network, Hezbi Islamic Gubadin, and Kedeshur Ta Taliban. As people saw that really providing sponsorship to these groups means a return to the same sort of Taliban brutal rule that they experienced after the 1992-96 civil war, and as soon as they saw that they were going to, to be victims of that kind of oppression again, and then when they saw there's an alternative, and we could move toward a more inclusive political settlement at the local level, then that broke that, that, that sponsorship uh, for, for those Taliban groups. And we've been able to consolidate gains, at least temporarily, uh, in southern Afghanistan uh, and in eastern Afghanistan. The same, I think, was true in the period after the very destructive fitna and civil war, very costly fitna and civil war from 2006 to 2008. Iraqis came together, began to forge these sorts of accommodations at the local level, and what we hope to see is more of those accommodations at the national level. Okay, and uh, and we, talk, we talked, obviously, in the first panel more about, about why that hasn't occurred. Okay, there's a gentleman right here, and then we'll try to take a group right here. Thank you, ma'am. Um, I'm Jingyi Chan with Phoenix TV. Uh, this question is to Mr. Brzezinski. Since the president right now is taking his very first foreign trip to, uh, in his second turn to the Middle East, how do you see his uh, Middle East policy? And can he really achieve something in his second term? Thank you. I, um, we're going to take a couple of questions. I, I'm, I'm hoping, I don't want to rule things out, but I'm hoping to keep the focus on the big question we have before us, which is the lessons of a decade of war. Right here. Jeffrey Lin from Senator Angus King's office. I was wondering, given that uh, General mentioned how war often doesn't turn out the way we wanted to, that if the air-sea battle concept would be perhaps too much tending towards that direction and towards Mr. Berzinski, sir. I was wondering how the the vast investment we put into Iraq has sort of possibly shifted priorities away from, say, the Asia-Pacific and the Europe during the 2000s. We'll take one more. Go ahead. Yeah, Mohammed Hussaini from the Arab League. Uh, this is uh, uh, to the general. You said regarding the one of the conduits is uh, history. Three decades of brutal and madras regime, that's correct, but the Iraqi were doing this for three decades. It's only at the end when the United States realized that Iraq, on the assumption that they own weapons of mass destruction, threatening one of your allies there upon 
false information. So it was not, the regime was brutal all the time. Thank you. Okay. Well, <laughs> we've got the whole world on the table, but maybe briefly if you can. Well, I think the brief question addressed to me was, you know, how has our expenditures on Iraq affected our ability to operate elsewhere? Well, the United States is the number one superpower. We have the largest economy. So we managed to remain engaged in other parts of the world and I hope act responsibly and effectively. But that doesn't refute the proposition that the war in Iraq was excessively expensive, not only morally, but financially and physically. And it has not contributed to greater regional stability, but has enhanced greater regional instability. The kind of phenomena that were described in terms of internal conflict in a variety of these countries is an increasingly pervasive global reality. If the lesson to be drawn from it is that whenever there are quote-unquote murderous groups doing nasty things, the United States has to go in militarily and to deal with it, I think it's a recommendation for a policy that it will be ultimately suicidal. I think that is the kind of a policy that our adversaries, who would like to see our power decline, who would like to see ourselves spent in endless conflicts all over the place for doubtful reasons, will be, in fact, a gift to them. So I'm sure we can maintain a reasonable and stable policy towards the Far East, and we're doing it. Uh, but I hope we'll also draw some lessons from the experience of the conflicts that we have waged in recent years with rather dubious geopolitical effects. Can I ask you maybe both to, to address the question of Syria, um, which seems more than Iran to have echoes about the kinds of choices that we, and the kinds of difficulties of, of uh, intertwined military and political considerations um, that we faced in, in Iraq? Well, I would say on Syria is that we got off on the wrong foot in the, in the first place. Remember, the trouble started about two years ago. Not long thereafter, the President of the United States declared publicly that Assad of Syria has to go. And that was a choice that he made. One would assume that declaring it publicly involves a commitment by the United States, which the United States is prepared then to make effective and that therefore we have the means and the strategy for achieving that objective. It soon turned out that this was a rhetorical commitment without a real capacity for follow through on our part. So we went to the UN and we demanded that the UN Security Council support us on this. Not surprisingly, the Russians and the Chinese said, well, we don't share this conclusion, and we're not going to join you in forcing Assad out, and we object, and the resolution fell. We thereupon denounced the Russians and the Chinese as having engaged in a stance that is infantile and uh, disgusting. Those were the words used by our ambassador to the UN which is not a way of soliciting their support for further, <laughs> further common policy. On top of it, it became increasingly clear that the opposition to Assad is very mixed. Some of it involves some of our friends uh, who are sponsoring Salafi movements. Some of it involves the infiltration of al-Qaeda types, 
into Syria. Some of it involves Iranian involvement, and therefore the picture is far from clear. It was also increasingly evident that we didn't really have strong support from groups that were capable of organizing an effective military resistance. So we have been stalemated. Recently, we have announced that we will provide money to the resistance groups and humanitarian aid, but we will not give them arms. Well, which is a curious decision, because first of all, we don't really know to whom to give arms in the first place. So we're not going to give arms because we don't know who the recipients are, how reliable they are. But we're going to give some people some money and humanitarian aid. Since humanitarian aid, and particularly money, is fungible, they can buy arms. So whom are we really arming indirectly, having decided in the first place that there aren't any people that we want to arm? So I think our policy really is rather short-sighted and not particularly effective. I think the best that we can hope for is some international settlement still, in which somehow we will manage to get the Russians and the Chinese, and through them, therefore, also the Iranians to participate. Because otherwise, the conflict will go on. It will involve the fragmentation of Syria, and probably will have a negative destabilizing impact on Iraq, as well as on Lebanon and on Jordan. And these are not conditions that are felicitous to the kind of the Middle East that we would like to promote. Okay, I'd like to just go back uh, to the question about air-sea battle quickly. Air-sea battle is a, is a, is a really stra- a, an operational approach designed by uh, mainly the Air Force and the Navy, but with participation of the other services as well to defeat what is seen as emerging uh, enemy anti-access capabilities. The, I, I think it's great. I mean, I'm a huge fan of it because obviously, you know, as, as a soldier, you can't get anywhere unless you travel through the air or by sea, right, uh, to contingency operations overseas, certainly. But, of course, the question is really, it is not an answer. And I, think, and I don't think anybody, you know, I would say in their right minds would say it's a, it's a solution to the problem of future war. It's just a way to, to, to be able to get, uh, to, to get um, use joint forces uh, in a position to do what they need to do given the situation. And so the, the question is, when everybody poses something like this as an operational capability, how does it get to a strategy? Well, it would have to deal, I think, with those four continuities of war that we were discussing it at the beginning. On, on the question of, of Syria, I can't really comment on that because, uh, first, I'm not an expert at all. By any means, I'm not an expert on Iraq either. But, but, uh, but the, I think the, the, the main thing for us to consider, looking back at Iraq as, as a lesson that may be applicable more broadly, is that we have to understand really all the battlegrounds that are contested between us and our enemies. And again, you know, the, we, we, can't, we can't just assume that what we decide to do either is going to be sufficient for us to achieve our objectives or explains everything that's wrong in a particular area. What the U.S. is doing, it seems like we are ready to affix blame for everything to ourselves as well, which I reject having encountered enemies who do use uh, mass murder as, as a principal uh, tactic. And, uh, and I think any, any sort of comments that go toward the equivalency of what our forces do and what forces do who take a 13-year-old girl and strap her with explosives and have her hold the hand of a three-year-old mentally disabled girl, walk them into a crowd and remotely detonate them, you know, I, I just don't accept that kind of equivalency argument. And so, um, so I, think, uh, I think we have to recognize that we're contested on the physical battleground but also on the psychological battleground. Because this is a battleground where our enemies use fear and intimidation to advance their objectives. 
we also have to be concerned about a battleground of perception, where our motives are are uh, portrayed as as being you know imperialist or associated with some sort of uh, you know uh, uh, you know um, Zionist crusader conspiracy and so forth. So we have to become more effective at clarifying our intentions, countering the enemy's disinformation, exposing their brutality, and bolstering the legitimacy of those who, who are really genuine partners, whose interests are, are congruent with ours. And then there's the battleground within governmental institutions that oftentimes we don't really recognize. And, and, uh, and this really would have to do in Iraq in the case of, of, uh, of, of the, the infiltration and subversion of state institutions uh, by by uh, Islamist groups, uh, mainly Shia Islamist groups, and and those uh, connected to, uh, to the Iranians in, in particular, and and this is this made it particularly difficult to strengthen uh, the the Iraqi state, uh, and especially to move toward you know, toward rule of law and, and effective governance, and oftentimes we don't even see that subversive campaign. This is nothing new, you know. Sir Robert Thompson wrote many decades ago that there are five keys to effective counterinsurgency operations. One of those is to defeat enemy political subversion. What happened in Iraq during the period of time when the Civil War, the Fitna, was particularly destructive is that, is that surrogates of, of Iran uh, were, were using state institutions uh, and to mobilize resources in what became you know, a, a sectarian cleansing campaign in certain portions of, of the country. And that, and that perpetuated... Uh, perpetuated the violence. Uh, the approach that, that, that the RGC and their proxies have taken uh, in Iraq uh, is to try to make the Iraqi government dependent on them for support, but at the same time to, to support the development of militias that lie outside of government control that can be turned against the government if the government uh, takes action against, uh, against Iranian interests. So I think if you look at, at Syria, the, the, the key things to, to keep into consideration are what are the multiple battlegrounds and then be able to understand what, what we would define as enemy or adversary activity on those battlegrounds. And that could be a step toward understanding what can be done to, to support really the, the, uh, an outcome there that will, that will stop this, this humanitarian cata- catastrophe of, of colossal scale, uh, but do so in a way that's, that's consistent with our interests and what, what I would believe is the interest of, of all civilized people. Thank you. I, um, there are dozens of questions in the room. Uh, I have several dozen more, but unfortunately, we've run out of time. I want to thank uh, <laughs> thank both. Uh, I I want to thank all of you who have been with us all day for for this discussion, and in particular, Dr. Brzezinski, General McMaster, uh, and thank you both for very much for joining us.